Uh, We're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John. Today our account takes place not long after Jesus Christ um, has performed his first public miracle. And if you were here last week, then we looked at the uh, Jesus Christ going to the wedding and they had run out of wine and Jesus Christ, um, uh, he produced water or produced wine from water and uh, helped the, the wedding party out there. And last week we looked at what happens when we give Jesus the opportunity to work. And uh, it was very positive. I mean, he, we found out that he's interested in our needs. He's interested in meeting the needs of people. He, he uses human instruments to accomplish his will. And that he works in ways we could never have expected. It was, very, it was a very positive message. And you might get the idea that if that's the first thing he did, then, then his whole ministry, Jesus is just going to be about making friends. And yet, that's not what happens today. Just, be, just when you think you've got it figured out, Jesus does something very serious here, and I would say even confrontational. Look at verse 12. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren, and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. Capernaum, uh, it appears that Capernaum became his, his home. Uh, maybe at some point they moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, and that's where they went with his mother and the disciples and his brothers, uh, his family. Verse 13, though, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves. And the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables, making friends and influencing people, is what I call that. And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years, they didn't get it, Forty and six years was this temple in building, And wilt thou rear it up in three days? Come on. But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. He's talking about his resurrection. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, we're going to be focusing primarily on verses 13 through 22. And I hope you understand the intensity of what happens here. Uh, We're told in scripture that Jesus, two different times, walked into the temple, saw what was going on, ...and cleansed the temple. He did it this time in his very first couple of weeks of public ministry... 
And the Bible says three years later, he went back into the temple during his last week of ministry and did the same thing. And I think if that tells us anything, it tells us this, that Jesus Christ is interested in a clean temple. He is interested in having a cleansed body, a cleansed life. And, and what, I, what it says to me is this, that maybe it's time for a spring cleaning. Now, you say, well, it's not spring. Well, if, if uh, we could have a, a cleaning and its spring was attached, we probably would want a spring cleaning right now. Spring may be a, a few months away. Maybe we're looking forward to it. But I know it's January, but let's just be honest. There are times when we need to just stop and clean. We allow the buildup, we allow the dirt, we allow the filth of the culture get into the recesses of our hearts. And Jesus Christ needs to be given the opportunity to walk into our temple personally, our temple as a body, and do some spring cleaning. Is it time for a spring cleaning? Let's pray. Father, we need your help. I pray that you'd bless the time, bless the reading of your word, that you'd meet with us and illuminate the truth. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As a kid, Saturday morning uh, at our house was cleaning day for my mom. Uh, I don't know if this is the way, if you have a certain day of the week that you clean. It, it was Saturdays for me. I never set an alarm on Saturdays because I would always wake up to the gentle sounds of a vacuum cleaner. My mom was all about cleaning Saturdays. I, and actually, when I, I still, to this day, do you have anybody have a, a smells that you associate with something else? Anytime I smell bathroom cleaner, I think of cereal and Saturday morning cartoons. And I, it's not necessarily a great memory, but my mom, that's what she did. Saturday morning, she cleaned, and she was very good. She keeps a clean house. Um, and just when I thought it couldn't be any cleaner, spring cleaning was even more intense. We lived in Wyoming, Evanston, Wyoming, which would be similar in the wintertime to what happens here. The wind always blows, and, and it's cold. And, and the, at the first signs of the sun and warmer weather, my mom, I, I remember just every year that I can remember, she said, all right, this Saturday, it's time for spring cleaning. And we would get to work, and I would have to clean out my closet, you know, all the things I had hidden from my parents, you know, or swept under my bed. It was time to get clean. There was nothing, when it came time for spring cleaning, there was nothing off the table. Every corner of the house was examined. And it reminds me of our passage as I prepared for this text. It helped me realize that spring cleaning is actually biblical. There were three feasts in Israel, which required all of Israel within 15 miles of Jerusalem to journey for the feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is also known as the Passover. It took place in late March or early April. And then 50 days later, a little over a month later, the Feast of Weeks would take place. And then in the fall, they would have the Feast of Tabernacles. And these three were the three main feasts. And the men of Israel and, and those within 15 miles of Jerusalem would, would travel. Many would come from further away um, to make a pilgrimage for the Passover. Some say that up to 2 million people came into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And, with all, and Jerusalem is not as big as maybe we imagine it being. They would just overwhelm the city. And with all of the out-of-town guests coming, then the city, uh, Jerusalem, would, would prepare for all of the guests by doing things like repairing the roads, 
and rebuilding bridges and, and uh, cleaning the streets and repairing gates and even whitewashing the sepulchers. See, the winter, like it is around here, the winter was, was hard on the roads, especially dirt roads. It left the road system a mess. And, and it was like kind of like pothole season in Sioux Falls. When the weather starts to warm up and the potholes need to be filled in, we can imagine it was a little bit like that. It was such a big deal that some, of, uh, some say the origins of spring cleaning are traced back to the Jews preparing for the Passover. And I don't know that for sure, but certainly it was a, a prevalent part of their spring to get ready for all the guests coming from out of town. Unfortunately, among all the cleaning and, and among all the picking up and the wiping down and the repairing roads and repairing the bridges and cleaning the streets, there, there was a problem. See, even though they cleaned up much of the city, at least the parts that could be seen, the most important area for the Passover, which was the temple itself, was not addressed. Now, sure, they cleaned it, but they didn't really clean it. That, this would be a little bit like uh, cleaning up the house. I don't know if it's like this for you. When you have guests coming over, there's some intensity before they get there. And, and there's some cleaning going on. It'd be like cleaning up the house because you're going to have a house full of guests and, and making sure everything is spotless and every speck of dust is picked up. But, but failing to deal with the living room where the guests are going to be sitting. In many ways, that represents what's happening here in Jerusalem. And I also think it represents what happens in the lives of God's people more than we realize See, we're very good at cleaning the outside. We're very good at presenting an image. And, and many of us to get ready for this. You know, we cleaned up, we showered, we, we brushed our teeth, we did our hair. The ladies put on makeup, we put on our clothes, we made sure they were ironed. We put on multiple layers of clothes on a day like this. But we were ready, we wanted to make sure we present an image. And the outside looks a certain way. And we're very, very intent on making sure we present a certain image. But there are times, and I don't know if it's this way for you, but I know it is for me, but there are times when I give more attention to the outside and I leave the inside untouched. Rather than doing business like it should be done on the inside, a, a spring cleaning listen, means that you address the hidden parts. And sometimes it's good for us to stop and consider not just the outside, but maybe it's time for an inner spring cleaning. See, Jesus comes to his father's house for the Passover, and as he arrives and he sees what's going on, he finds two things that are problematic. Number one is they were selling animals inside the temple walls. Now, now the temple is, there's the holy place and the holy of holies, and then there's a courtyard, an outer courtyard, and this is where the general public could come. This is the one place that the, the courtyard of the Gentiles, they would even call it, where the Gentiles, it's the closest they could get to the temple. But in that courtyard, in this large area, within the walls of the temple, they were, they were selling animals to be sacrificed. Now, the Jews, you say, well, there's nothing wrong with selling animals because the Jews were required to bring a sacrifice to the Passover. The rich would be, bring larger animals, like in our text even, it talks about oxen, and sheep, the rich, if, the, if you were rich, you could afford a larger animal. You could afford an ox or cattle or a, 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 you could afford a sheep 
or a goat, something along those lines, while the poorer folks would bring something small like a dove because that's what they could afford. But a sacrifice was required. And since many of them came from great distances, then just imagine if it's you and your family and you're going to be traveling a few days to get to Jerusalem, you'll likely be, be walking or on, on some kind of an animal perhaps, but you're going a great distance. Can you imagine then, in addition to your children, now you've got to bring a sheep. And if you know anything about sheep, you know they don't follow you very well. And, and they, they, they tend to get lost. They, they tend to not be very easy to herd. And, and so it'd be, it would be difficult. You're not only care, taking your children and your family, but now you're responsible for this animal. And, and then, or maybe you, not only that, then once you get to the temple, then every sacrifice had to be an ex- examined by a temple examiner because they were, you're not allowed to bring a sacrifice that was with blemish. Meaning if there was some flaw in that animal, then it wasn't worthy of being sacrificed. So can you imagine then, you've got a sheep, you don't notice a blemish, you go all the way to Jerusalem a few days, you're monitoring the sheep, trying to keep it from you know, falling in a hole, because that's what sheep do. You get to the temple, and you go to an examiner to have them look at your, your, your sacrifice, and they say, oh no, it's got a blemish, you can't use this sheep. So it got to the point where many people just said, you know what, we're going to go to the temple or go to Jerusalem and buy an animal there. They would sell pre-approved sacrifices. They had already been examined by the temple examiner. So you know that you could go to Jerusalem without the hassle of taking the sheep or carrying a dove in a cage, uh, whatever you were taking. You could go to the temple, you could go to Jerusalem and buy an animal right there. It's pre-approved. It's already clean. I mean, it's like the car dealers. You're pre-approved for a loan. This is a pre-approved sacrifice. You know, and it became an issue, though, because worship became a matter of convenience. And rather than really making it a sacrifice and making it something that people had to work for, it became all about what was convenient. I I mean, I know it would be difficult to bring your own animal, but if we only worshipped when it was convenient, would you be here this morning? Probably not. Because worship is not just about convenience. And I know there are some people that couldn't make it. I, I completely understand that. But it affected their mindset about worship. It became all about well, what's easiest. And, and, and not only that then, the sellers, knowing that they were coming from however far they were coming from, then they would, they would set up their booths and sell their animals. They knew that this person had no other option except to, to buy an animal from me. So they would price gouge. They would raise the prices of the animals. The sellers would charge these astronomical prices. They knew that people had to pay it. And as a result, listen, as a result, the temple became, instead of about worship of the Father, it became about convenience, it became about greed, it became about corruption. A place of worship became a place of abuse. And God's people were ripping off God's people in the temple, not even in the marketplace. We're talking about in the temple. And that didn't sit well with Jesus. The second problem is this. They were making serious profit off of money exchanging. So the Jews, they were required to bring what's called a temple tax. And it wasn't a huge tax. It was likely maybe a day's wage or something like that. But it helped the temple to operate. There was plenty of expenses and, and needs in the temple. And 
one issue for the people was that the temple only accepted a silver coin called a Tyrian shekel. A Tyrian shekel is Jewish currency. Now, the people were coming from all over the known world. So you were coming from a place that might deal in Roman coins. Or a place that might deal in Greek coins. There were other, other kinds of currency, depending on where you were coming from. But you couldn't go into the temple and use a Roman coin or some other coin in the temple. That would be considered defiling the temple. The only, uh, the only allowed currency was this Tyrian shekel. It was Jewish currency. They had to use Jewish money. There was no other option. And the money changers saw a chance to make money themselves. They knew that the people coming in would have to exchange their money. They knew they had to pay the temple tax. So they would hike up the exchange rate. They would charge an arm and a leg just to exchange the money to the Tyrian shekel. And what was meant to be a house of worship became a house of greed. They were more interested in personal gain than worship. And if you can imagine, if you've ever seen the images or the videos of the New York Stock Exchange... You know, people running around, people yelling, people making deals, haggling, all of this intensity. It's a chaotic scene. And that's what was happening in the temple. It was no longer about the Father. It was about personal gain. It, it was about convenience. It was about greed. And it became corrupted. And you know, it's interesting. They gave lots of attention to spring cleaning the city. They would even clean their own houses really well. They would even not eat leaven leading up to the Passover because it represented sin and uncleanness. But listen, no attention was given to the place where they were meeting with God. The streets were clean. The temple was corrupted. They looked good on the outside, but the inside needed spring cleaning. You know, there's two things to notice about Jesus' response here and the first is this, Jesus has a zeal for his father's house. He comes in, he found in verse 13, 14, it says, And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords and drove them out of all the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold the doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Zeal is hot, fervent, indignant. It means that you're jealous. If you can just imagine Jesus Christ rolling up his sleeves to handle the problem. You know, all, all of these Renaissance period works of art depict Jesus uh, with soft features and long groomed hair and, and uh, just a gentleness about him. And I know that he could be gentle. But listen, I don't think at all that that conveys who Jesus Christ really was. He was the son of a carpenter. He used his hands. He was a man's man. He had strength. He had authority. And he was willing to deal with things when they needed to be dealt with. He comes into the temple and he makes his zeal known. The disciples, when they say, the zeal of thine house have eaten thee up, they're referring to Psalm 69, 
which is about David, it says, For the zeal of thine house, house hath eaten me up, David says. The reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. He says, I feel the burn. I feel the zeal. I want to protect God's house. He says, When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was for my reproach. David said, I made sackcloth, also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. You know, one thing I love about David is his passion. He was passionate about a lot of things, but he was especially passionate about God's house. He wanted to build the temple, and God wouldn't allow him because he was a man of war. He had blood on his hands, so it became Solomon's responsibility. But he wanted to build the temple. He wanted the best for God's house. And the son of David, Jesus Christ, the son of David, he was also passionate about his father's house. He's righteously angry. He's not sinfully angry. Uh, he, he's not selfishly angry. He's not, he is, he's not making it about him. No, he's, he has righteous anger. We see, when you love something, you can't help but have zeal for it. And when you have, when you are most passionate, listen, about the things that you love the most. We know that Jesus Christ loves his father. Jesus Christ loves his father's house. So when he walked into the temple that day and he sees this scene, he stops and he makes a whip. Maybe from some reeds or strips of leather that he finds. You know, and just take note, he didn't walk in and get angry, righteously angry, and then just start doing something. No, he actually took the time to make a whip. That tells you something about the kind of anger that he had. He stops and he makes a whip. Then he goes into the courtyard and, and he starts, he, he, you hear the smack on the backside of an oxen, of ox. Boom! Crack! Out, he says. Get out, he says. This is my father's house. This isn't a place of business. And he drives out the oxen. And he drives out the sheep. And I imagine he wanted to drive out the money changers too. You know? I don't know if that's the sound I think of it making. Yeah, you probably could do it better. But that in my office, I was like, how do I practice that? And then, oh well. Smacking things, getting them out of there. That's how zealous he was for the house of God. And sometimes we think, well, I can't believe he would lose control like that. I, I can't believe that Jesus, the Son of God, who is a God of love, I can't believe that he would, he would go and, and pour their money out of the baskets. I can't believe he would turn their tables over and, and shout and just be so angry. No, before you imagine a man out of control, I want you to consider two things. First of all, he stopped to make the whip. He didn't just react. No, he was being very deliberate. And then second, verse 16, look what it says. And said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. So yes, he's like, whoosh, whoosh. he's whipping out the oxen, he's getting the sheep out of there, he's driving the money changers out, but to those that hold the doves. You know what, I, I, we would imagine maybe he would go up to the cages, open the cage and release the doves and watch them fly away. But so, you know, you can catch up with the ox or the sheep that gets out of the temple. But if you release the doves, those folks aren't getting those doves back. And so I just want you to take note of the fact that Jesus was angry, but he was not out of control. He was angry, but he hadn't lost his mind. 
He was angry, but he was still doing things deliberately. And he was still concerned about the fact that these doves would be lost. And there's somebody that's poor won't maybe have a sacrifice. And, and these folks won't be able uh, to make a living. No, he's being very deliberate about his anger. And that's how you know it's righteous anger. It's not selfish anger. It's not reactive anger. Because he's taking the time to do things in a deliberate way. And by the way, I want to just remind you today, it is possible to be angry and for the righteousness of God and to have zeal for things that are right, but it is never right to be out of control in that anger. It's possible to be deliberate about the things we are passionate about. There's a certain anger that's appropriate when it's driven by a love for God and a desire for His righteousness. And you probably experience this anger like I do uh, on occasion, especially when I'm watching the news. Well, I can't hardly handle it anymore. Just the, the, the things going on in our country, and I want our country to do right. I want our country to follow God, and there are things that are happening, and I just have to turn the TV off. Or I have to stop listening because it, something in me wants the righteousness of God to be exalted. And I know we live in a country that has turned its back on God. Well, that's what Jesus is, is doing here. But he's not out of control. Listen, we hurt ourselves when we have righteous anger that's out of control. Because you can be righteously angry and be like Jesus, but you can't be out of control and be like Jesus. He's deliberate. He is, at, he is deliberate in his actions. He's methodical. He's patient. But he lets them know his passion. And my question, though, for you is what can we learn from this first part that he has a zeal for God's house? Well, listen, he had zeal for a clean house. So do you have passion for a clean house? I mean, not just in our homes, although that's not a bad habit. No, the Bible says that our body is a temple. It's a temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Listen, a holy God dwells in you. And if you love him like you should, how can you not be passionate about having a clean house for a holy God to dwell in? Listen, it's not enough to be outwardly clean. We ought to strive to be inner clean, to, inner, to be clean on the inside for inner holiness. The most important trait, listen, the most important trait about a child of God is holiness. To be holy like God is holy. And if you love your father, you won't be able to stand the inner filth of the sin in your life because he deserves a clean vessel to fill. 1 John 1, 9 ought to be a verse that you practice every single day. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we ought to every day, honestly, every moment, after every sin, it ought to be our habit to go before God and say, God, clean my house. Clean me up. I want to be holy like you are holy. But the house of God is also represented by a church family. We are the, the, the house of God, the temple of God, for, as Paul wrote to Timothy about. We are a picture of him to the world. He dwells among us. He fills his, uh, our assembly with his presence. And listen, as a church, the most important trait of our membership is not large size numbers. The most important thing about us is do we have energy in our services? Although I want energy in our services. You did good today. 
The best thing about us, the most important thing about us is, well, what about our music? And we want good music for God's sake, but that's not the most important thing about us. The most important thing about us is not our children's ministry programs. It's not our teen ministry programs. It's not our buildings, although we have a beautiful building. Listen, the most important thing about us is that we are holy like our Father is holy. If we are nothing else but holy, then I believe we can live lives that please God. We ought to be passionate about being clean. No group ought to be more passionate or more zealous about providing an appropriate place for a holy God to dwell. And I'm wondering, is that true of us? And it's easy to clean the hallways. We have people that do that, and I'm thankful for it. It's easy to clean the bathrooms. We have people that faithfully do that. It's not quite as easy to ensure that our hearts are clean through the continuous confession of sin. And sometimes I wonder, I know this is a heavy message for a Sunday morning like this, but God knew, I mean, he knew we'd be here. And sometimes I wonder if we're better at cleaning our building than we are cleaning our hearts. Sometimes I wonder if we're more passionate about cleaning the snow on the parking lot so people can get in than we are making sure we are right with God on the inside. Are we more zealous about the appearance, the outward appearance, the outward reform than we are the inner renewal? Listen, do the hearts of our church membership match the cleanliness of our church building? I mean, if the two are so far apart, it may be time, folks, for a spring cleaning. If we do nothing else, we ought to be a church family of holiness. Jesus has a zeal for his house. And second, we see that he has authority over his father's house. So he comes in and, and he cleans out the temple. He, you know, the, you do the sound effect. Oxen, sheep, they're driven out. Verse 18, here's the response of the Jews. And by the way, remember, when we first started this series, when it says, then answered the Jews, when it says the Jews, that's typically talking about the Jewish establishment, the religious leaders. If he's talking about the multitude, he'll use multitude typically. When he talks about the Jews, he's referring very often to the Sanhedrin or those in religious leadership. And so these guys in religious leadership, they watch Jesus roll up his sleeves, kick out the oxen, kick out the sheep, kick out the money changers, dump over the tables, pour the money out on the ground, and they come up to him and they say this in verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? And they sound really diplomatic about it, but what they're saying is, Who do you think you are? What authority do you have? To come into our temple and do these things. Now remember, the Jews are looking for the Messiah to come. They, they think he's going to come and establish power. That he's going to give them liberty from the Romans. But along comes this, in their minds, a random carpenter from Nazareth. And he starts messing with their business in the temple. And they don't like it. Who do you think you are? What authority do you think that you have? And Jesus' answer is so fantastic but everybody misses it. I'm glad that we have hindsight. Look at what he says in verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Was he talking about the physical temple? No. No, then said the Jews, 40 and six years was this temple in building and wilt thou rear it up in three days? 
I mean, you honestly think if this temple gets knocked down, you can fix it in three days? It took 46 years for us to get to the temple the way it is now. And Herod's temple was a, a, was a, a, a work of art. It was this massive, beautiful temple with, with uh, massive buildings. And it was a beautiful structure. And, and they said 46 years for us to get what we have right now. You can do it in three days. Come on, buddy. And they don't understand that he's giving them a prophecy. It says in verse 21, he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. What do you see, they say, what sign do you have that you can come into our temple and do these things? And he says, here's my sign and about three years from now. You're going to kill me. You're going to crucify me. Some of you who are accusing me right now, asking me this very question, you will be accusing me then. And I will be crucified on a cross. I will die and I'll be buried. And anyone can die and be buried. But listen, listen, don't miss this. But only one has raised himself from the dead and his name is Jesus. And what Jesus says to them is the only sign I need is that in three years, about three years, I'm going to rise from the dead and I will prove to everybody that I am who I say I am. And it doesn't really matter what I say to you right now in this courtyard. You're not going to believe me. But in three years, I want you to remember that I said these words. And I want you to remember this. When I raise from the dead, then you will know that I have authority over my father's house. All the authority I need to make demands of you in my father's house will be proven when I rise from the dead. And Jesus was revealing to them that he has authority over the house. That he is the person that, is, that has the right to go into the temple and clean the house. And if, if I am the son of God, he says, and I will prove I am at the resurrection, then I have authority to clean up my father's house. Listen, th this morning, this means Jesus has the right to declare what is appropriate in his house. Business is inappropriate in God's house. Greed is not appropriate in God's house. Ego and infighting, it's not appropriate in God's house. Striving for personal gain, it's not appropriate in God's house. Building my own personal kingdom, that's not appropriate in God's house. Taking advantage of other people, that's not appropriate in God's house. Let's get down to it. Mixing the secular with the sacred, it's not appropriate in God's house. That's why we do some of the things that we do. That's why we don't just latch on to some of the trends of modern churches today. Because we're not trying to be secular, we're trying to be sacred. And according to this text right here, there should be a distinct difference between the secular and the sacred. Listen, this house should be separate and should be distinct and it should be holy. And Jesus Christ has the right to demand that of us. And our responsibility is to place ourselves under Christ's examining eye. Both personally and corporately. We should say, Father, Jesus Christ, you have the zeal for God's house. And you have the authority over God's house. And I place myself under your authority. Would you examine me? Would you look in me? And you have the right to tell me whatever you want to tell me. Because you have the right and the authority and the right zeal over my life. Would you purify me, Jesus Christ? See, judgment begins at the house of God, Peter said. Better to be examined 
and change now than wait until the judgment seat of Christ. You think, I don't know why I come to church. It's just, it's kind of long and, you know, boring and, you know, it's inconvenient. I'll tell you why you need, why you need to come to this place, why you need the preaching, why you need the exhortation. Because if we don't have the examining eye of Jesus Christ looking into our lives on a consistent basis, then the world's filth builds up in the recesses of our hearts and we might not even know it. We need the mirror of God's word to tell us where we have fallen short. We need the, the influence of the Holy Spirit through his word to teach us where, we are, where we're not, where we're supposed to be. We need the examining eye of Jesus Christ to come in with a whip sometimes and, and kick out the things that shouldn't be there and tell us, no, this is wrong and tell us, no, this shouldn't be here and this isn't appropriate in my house and you need to get rid of these things. We need the God to have the opportunity to examine us. Judgment begins at the house of God. Why let your life build up the filth of the world without realizing it? And you stand before him at the judgment seat and say, man, I should have done this a lot more in my life. Given you the opportunity to purify me. You know, listen, Jesus has the right to demand a holy house. Acts 20, 28 says he purchased the church with his own blood. Ephesians 5 says that he loved it and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5.25. Ephesians 1.22 says Jesus is the head over all things to the church. Ephesians 5.32 says the church is the bride that he is espoused to. And each New Testament assembly is a body that belongs to Jesus according to Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. Listen, what I, I say those things to let you know that he has bought us with a price. Therefore, he has the authority and the zeal to be able to determine what is appropriate in our lives and what is not. And not just in our lives individually, but in our lives as a church. We do not exist to be what, I think I, what we think I ought to be. We, we do not exist to be, sorry, what I think our church ought to be. We do not exist to be what you think our church ought to be. We exist to be what Jesus Christ considers what we ought to be. He's the one who determines what is appropriate here. Listen, we're not a mall and we're not a coffee shop. We're not taking polls, asking people what we ought to do. We answer to Jesus Christ. He is our head. I'm not the head. I am under Jesus Christ. I'm not the head any more than you're the head. No, there's one head. His name is Jesus. And he has the proper zeal. And he has the authority over us. And what guides us. And what we are supposed to be. And as much as I want at times. To make people happy. Only one has the true authority. To determine what Eastside Baptist Church looks like. And when it comes to the Father's house. Do you share in his zeal? And do you submit to his authority? Maybe it's time for a spring cleaning. How's your love for the house of God? It's easy for all of us to lose sight of what this place is meant to be. And if we just show up and go through the motions, we're, then we're really no better than money changers. 
We've all, if, we've all, if we just show up and, and we, we're building our little kingdoms, no, then we've altered the purpose of the Lord's house. And we're no better than the Jews who cleaned up the outside while the inside remained filthy. Listen, your zeal will be impacted by what you love. Have you lost your love for God and his house? Because according to Revelation uh, chapter 2, once you lose your first love, there's disaster around the corner. Do you have passion for holiness? If Eastside Baptist Church is nothing else, it should be clean. We ought to be a clean house. We ought to be people with hearts that reflect our Savior and He's holy. And it's easy to get dirty in this world, but your life should reflect your Savior and He is holy and sinless. Have you let the dirt of the world build up, build up in the recesses of your heart? It's time to get clean. It's time to prioritize holiness again. Why? Because a holy God deserves holy people and he has the right to ask that of us. That pretty much sums up what we should be about, holiness. And it may be time for a spring cleaning in your life. Are you willing to let the sun enter the temple with a scourge in his hand and look at every corner in every closet in every drawer, under every bed, in the most hidden parts, are you willing to say, it's all yours, you examine whatever you want, and anything that's not appropriate, you have the authority to tell me, and I will submit to it. Listen, he's zealous for us to be clean. He has the authority to demand it, and we have to be willing to say we want it too. And you say, why? It just seems so demanding, because a holy God deserves a holy temple in which to dwell. He wants to fill us. Listen, he wants to use us. He wants to give us abundant joy. And sometimes we think, well, God just wants us to be holy because he wants to tell us what to do. No, no, he wants us to be holy because he's a holy God. And if he wants us to be close to him, he can't be close to those with sin in their lives. He wants to walk with you and he wants to be near you. He wants a relationship with you. So for you to be holy is in your best interest because it puts you in a position that you can have a close relationship with God James said draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you he said cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded he said be afflicted and mourn and weep over your sin let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness and he said well that just sounds miserable why would I want to do that he says humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up Meaning that once you go through the process and you open the doors and allow Jesus into your house to clean whatever he finds that's dirty, then it's hard in the moment. There's mourning in the moment. There's weeping and there's sadness and there's regret. But after the weeping and after the sadness, when you find forgiveness and you walk closely to the Lord, then you find that there's joy you could never have otherwise Listen, for God to require holiness of his people is so that the end result might be joy and satisfaction. You'll never be joyful. You'll never be fully satisfied unless you submit, until you submit to the demands of Jesus Christ to clean up your life. And he wants to do it this morning. He wants to find a vessel that's... that's that's clean so that he can fill you and give you everything you ever desired. Our holiness leads to satisfaction, but God can't, clean un, un, God can't fill unclean vessels. We'll never function as a temple 
that God is pleased with until we first let him clean up the inside too. Today, I just want to close with this thought. Don't be more passionate about outward religion than you are an inner relationship. Because that's what was happening in the temple. And Jesus had to go in and take a severe action to help him get it right. Well, this morning, Jesus is examining your heart. You've given him a peek. And what I say is let him, let him examine every inch. Where he finds something that shouldn't be there, then you say, I submit. You bought me with a price. You have, you have the right and the authority to tell me what I need to change. And as you submit and purify your heart and clean your hands, you humble yourself with mourning. The Bible says he lifts you up. And he'll eventually, he'll turn your sorrow into joy and he'll fill you with satisfaction you could never have. And it all starts with opening the door to your temple and giving Jesus Christ free reign to spring clean your house. What in your life do you need to submit to Jesus Christ this morning? What sins have built up? What inappropriate actions and thoughts and attitudes have you taken that he's not pleased with? As a church, what do we need to expose him to to say, yes, this, is, this needs to be changed as a church family? Listen, I know this is individual, but it's also corporate. I want to be a church, a house of God, that he can use and fill. Sometimes I wonder if he can't do what he wants to do because we've brought in dirty vessels it's time to get clean let him take the whip let him drive out what shouldn't be there and in the end you'll find the satisfaction and joy that you've always wanted let's stand together every head bowed every eye closed let's do business with the lord this morning what what in your life needs a spring cleaning what habits are in your heart that need to be cleaned have you lost your zeal for God's house? We're going to be talking about that again this afternoon in the afternoon service. Have you lost your zeal? Have you forgotten what the purpose of this place is? Have you been exposing the Holy Spirit to things you shouldn't be exposing him to? Have you lost your, your zeal for holiness? It's time to get some things right, get some things clean. On a day like this, you know, maybe we came in with low expectations but maybe God wants to do a real work in somebody's heart this morning. Would you give him the opportunity? Father, we open the doors of our temples. We ask you to come in. And we ask you to drive out all that is in there that shouldn't be. Would you clean us? Would you make us holy? Would you help us to see where we need to change? God, we need you. In Jesus' name.